Okay. All right, everyone. Uh, if you want to be turning to Acts chapter 13, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we'll be starting from verse 13, and we'll read the rest of the chapter uh, in just a moment. But as you're finding that, if you're, if you're interested in why there appears to be uh, what's almost, almost an entire house appearing on, the, uh, on this side of the stage, um, well, it's going to be the new drum booth. We borrowed this one from a friend of Jem Stevens for, for some time. In the kind of proof of concept, is this going to help us in terms of controlling noise on stage, making it more enjoyable for people to hear and join in in worship? Uh, reckon that that probably was is the case, uh, and we have uh, a massive, I'm going to do a halfway through the project, massive thank you to John Hart for uh, putting this together and working very hard on it, uh, so thank you John. Uh, hopefully we'll be massively in the benefit of it very soon. Um, Acts 13, and verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognise Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took all 
He took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's a long passage. We pick up the story of where Paul and Barnabas go next. We've seen they've left Antioch. We saw last time as Dan was leading us through, they've crossed the sea to Cyprus. There's a plan and a mission. They're going to proclaim the gospel. They've gone to Cyprus and they head across Cyprus from Salamis to Paphos. And we learn here that from Paphos, they crossed the sea again and reached Perga on the south coast of modern day Turkey. And we learn there John departs and goes back to Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas head inland from Perga to the town of Pisidian Antioch. It's a town called Antioch in a region called Pisidia. 
And when they get there, what happens? We read that Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and they sit down. And whilst the meeting is going on, the time there is going on, they're presented with an opportunity and invited to speak. And that gives us this wonderful, uh, wonderful verses where we see and hear the first recorded preaching from Paul in the book of Acts. Like this whole kind of lengthy uh, passage that we can read of Paul just speaking to the people to those gathered at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And we go on to see the response of the people. And to be honest, even just reading through that again just now, I could go, well, we could be here for weeks. We could be here for months in this passage, looking at what Paul says. But today, we're going to see what can we learn from this. I'm going to suggest we can pull out four things. As we look at Paul speaking to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch and speaking to the people in that town. And firstly, I'm going to suggest we can, we can be reminded that this is God's story. It is all God's story. What does Paul do when he's invited? He's in, they say to Paul and Barnabas, if you've got a word of exhortation for us, Come and bring it. And Paul gets up and he tells them a story. He reaches back into their shared heritage and history. And he tells them very quickly, really, the history of the people of Israel. Basically, a, a condensed version of the, the Old Testament just put there. The story of the people of Israel leading through the centuries, leading to Jesus. He tells the story of a chosen people who have been rescued from Egypt, a people who were established as a nation and given judges and then kings, a kingdom established. First Saul and then David and then through David's line and through him, this man after God's own heart, we come later to Jesus, the Saviour who has come. Which leads to Paul bringing them to a response. People of Israel and you God-fearing Gentiles, this is where we find ourselves as I speak today. This is the message. This is the reality that we face. God has been at work calling a people and now Messiah has come. You can follow him. See, Paul tells their history. But as we look at it, see his emphasis all the way through. This is God's story. Paul is talking emphatically about what God has done. As he begins in verse 17, and we can rattle through, God chose his people. He chose Abraham. He see him calling his people through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the brothers. Continuing in verse 17, he made them prosper in Egypt. He led them out. It's God's doing. Through Moses, yes. Through the dealing with Pharaoh, yes. But it's God who does it. He endured their conduct for 40 years in the desert. 
And then he overthrew the nations in Canaan to bring them into the promised land. He gave them the land. As Paul goes on, God gave them judges. And when they asked for a king, God gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. God removed Saul and he made David king. It's God who testified about David. This man, David, son of Jesse, is a man after my own heart. God promised to send the saviour. In verse 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. As he goes on, we read that God raised Jesus from the dead. And in doing all of this, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. What an emphasis in telling the story, recounting the history, their history, the story of the people of Israel, the people of God. But this is God's story. God is at work. God has done it. God has brought them. God has been at work all the way through. Paul makes the deliberate choice. I'm going to focus on what God has done. And we can be reminded again today, this is God's story. God is the author of it all. God is the one who created everything. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And we could be living in a world, certainly in the West, certainly in the UK, where so many would say, what are you talking about that there's a God who made everything? What are you talking about that somehow there's this being somewhere who set everything in motion or made everything from nothing? No, 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 we've come on from that, those primitive ways of thinking and we can understand now science explains it all, which it doesn't. Science explains it all. We can work it out how these things happened. We don't need a God to kind of sit in there and be involved somehow. And even if we can't explain it all, well, God's not a great explanation. But the truth is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is him who did it. But more than that, he is continuously the sustainer and upholder of all things. It's God who is at work. He didn't just kick things off like somehow setting a marble rolling down a hill while the marble can work out its way now. It can sort it out. We can read throughout scripture, but glorious words, particularly in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3, talking of Jesus, we see the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. God is in control. God is the sustainer. And in Colossians 1, Paul says again, In Colossians 1 and verse 17, again talking of Jesus. He 
is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He goes on to say he is the head of the body, the church. In him all things hold together. He's the sustainer. In him all things are sustained. You may live in a world that says, oh no, 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 we don't need a God anymore. We don't need to believe in those kind of fairy tales, as they may suggest. But the truth is, it is God who gives us the very breath that we breathe. It is him in whom all things are sustained and held together. And as Paul tells the story here in Acts, look what God has done. Look what God is doing. Let me draw your attention back. God was at work. God was orchestrating. God was directing. God was doing it. God made them prosper. God brought them out. God endured their grumbling and worse in the desert. God did it. You see, we, like Paul, those of us who are in Christ, we know better than to believe what the word says. The world says, not the word says. We, we know to believe what the word says. We know better than to believe what the world says. But we can slip into that way of thinking or talking. Somehow giving into that impression that we are just insignificant clumps of cells on a small rock in an insignificant galaxy. Just drifting on the winds of chance and the laws of nature. Perhaps we can so seek to not super-spiritualise that we can give the impression that we fail to recognise that it's God who provides our every breath. It's God who is in control of everything. To take for granted the wonder of all he has done. We sung it so wonderfully this morning. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You pulled me from darkness. God, it's you. You see, even as I'm standing here today, I could tell you some of my story. Some of my life. I could tell that in a couple of ways. I could tell you, well, I could start here. Well, I could tell you that I was born... On Easter Monday in 1983 at Glen Maternity Hospital in Glasgow. And I lived for the first four years of my life in that city. I've got a sister. She was born three years after me. When I was four, my dad got a new job and we moved just south of Bristol. And we were part of a Baptist church in Clevedon. I grew up in that church. Uh, at some point during my childhood, around about... 10 years old, I decided I was going to follow Jesus. And God was at work in that. I slipped into the other way of telling the story. Anyway, we'll carry on. I grew up in there, went to school, did all the, did all the stuff, qualified from school, applied to university. Uh, and I chose to come to Sheffield. I turned down Oxford to come to Sheffield. I I applied and I was accepted, Dan. (laughs) 
I came to Sheffield and I did a degree in engineering. I got involved with City Church Sheffield. At some point working through a postdoc at the university and then working for Siemens uh, and working in wind power for actually I'm supposed to be involved more fully in the church and in leading in the church. At some point during that time, I met Nikki and we got married and we had two children. Andrew and Anna. And I could tell you all sorts of more things. Or I could tell you it like this. The Bible tells us that I, like you, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am absolutely delighted that God put me in a family where my mum and dad believed in God. And that God was at work through my formative early years. I may not have known it all the time. I may not have understood it. I may not have got everything that was going on on a Sunday and what people were talking about. But at some point during there, God got hold of me. And he saved me. And he was with me during my years at school. He was with me when people wanted me to come and play rugby on a Sunday morning. And he convinced me, no, you don't want to do that. And he was with me when I was applying to universities and the school was pushing be great if someone went to Oxford from Clevedon School and four of us were, uh, what's the word, encouraged to apply and we did. And I could suggest to you that I came here and I made a big decision. God got hold of me and said, this northern town that you don't know anything really about, northern town that's not that far north for those who are from further north, but it's not that far south for those of you who really like the fact that we're in the north. And God got hold of me and said, this is where you're supposed to be. God was at work. I can look back and see God was at work. Keep going, stand strong. Just do what you're doing. I could keep telling the story. But what's the difference? I can look back and see decisions that I made. And Paul could have looked back through the history and seen what was going on for the people and all of that. But the reality is, in and through all of it, God is at work. Our lives are not our own. We're bought with a price by him, for him. And he is in control. It's important that we remind ourselves as we see these words from Paul, God's at work, God is in control, God is the sustainer and upholder of all things and he is in charge. I encourage us in that to be humbled and to be encouraged. We have a God who's at work, but he's a God who is Lord's. Okay, so we're reminded that it's God's story. Secondly, we see God-given opportunity. It's interesting the way this plays out. 
Paul and Barnabas have taken the trip across the sea. John decides this is the time to go back to Jerusalem, which will be an interesting point later on in the story. And they enter the temple and they sit down. Note that this is and this will be part of their usual pattern to seek out the local synagogue, to seek out the Jews who are in that community and proclaim the good news there. But note this detail, particularly in Pisidian Antioch. As Luke writes it, Paul and Barnabas, they went to the synagogue when they were going to meet. They went to the synagogue and they sat down. They come to be part of the meeting. They come to worship, to be present. Do they expect to speak? Do they expect to be asked? We don't know. I would suggest to us sometimes evangelistic strategy can be very simple. Perhaps the opportunity can be completely unexpected. In this case, Paul and Barnabas went in and they sat down. We could look back in, in Acts 8, the way the Holy Spirit was nudging Philip. Go to the road, go down to that road, or go and stay close to that chariot. Go and stay close to that chariot and we'll see what presents itself. It's not always necessarily a big planned thing, like let's put on some big event as a church. Let's invite all our friends, let's go to town on it. Let's maybe, let's run an alpha course and invite everyone. Nothing wrong with those things. It's not necessarily always a proactive plan, I'm going to end up speaking here. You see, Paul and Barnabas, they have a plan, a broader plan, they're on a mission. But here, and on this day, they went to the synagogue at the normal time, on the Sabbath, and they sat down. And they were asked, do you have a word of exhortation for us? Opportunity comes. Opportunity comes as they go and take part and are there and being part of what they've, they've just always planned to be part of. Now, for you sitting here, for all of us, you may not be called to speak to a crowd, to preach to a synagogue. But we all have places that God has called us to be. He's brought us, brought us to the places that we're at. Whether that's at school, at work, at home, out in our community, the very seat that you're sat on this morning, the people you're sat next to, the bus that you'll ride tomorrow. place you're supposed to be or perhaps on occasions the Holy Spirit will nudge or maybe not just on occasions perhaps the Holy Spirit will nudge just go over there go and sit on that bench go and be near to that person go and make a coffee now pop into that shop it's God's story know that he is at work and we are his people in the places where he has put us. And we are carriers of hope. Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue and they sit down. And they're asked. I mean, synagogue leaders presumably knew who Paul and Barnabas were. 
he asked them to speak. But Peter encourages us in 1 Peter 3 and 15, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, let us always be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope in which we profess. It's not against planning and intentional activities, not against intentionally going out and declaring and proclaiming the gospel, but actually wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever you're doing every day of the week, God, let me be a displayer of hope where you've put me. Let me seek and pray for opportunities and help me to be ready to answer. We see they're given an opportunity and they take it. Thirdly, we see there is God-given boldness. Perhaps we don't see the same level of, conf of confrontation as we did with Elimas last week. I don't think we quite have the same language that Paul has to uh, describe Elimas in this passage this week. In fact, Paul's preaching could be considered quite winsome this week. He's building bridges with his fellow Jews. He's speaking of their shared heritage and their understanding of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And he's inviting them to respond, accompanied with the gentle warning of verses 38 and 39. Or particularly of verse 40, take care that the, what the prophets have said does not happen to you, as he goes on. It's in many ways winsome and it's an invitation, but yet there is still confrontation to come. As Paul and Barnabas conclude, there's uh, an invitation to come back next week and next week the whole town turns up. And what do we see? The Jewish leaders who had invited them initially to speak are now jealous as more people gather to Paul and Barnabas and they end up contradicting and heaping abuse on Paul. But at this point, this is where we see Paul and Barnabas respond with God-given boldness. They're not, they're not apologetic. They're not backing down. They're confident in the call God had given them. See, you can imagine the situation. They've, we've declared this truth. People have come the people in the city are not particularly, they're not so happy anymore. This, you've gathered a big crowd. I'm not sure what's going on. We're a bit jealous of this. You can imagine thinking, okay, sorry, maybe we went about this the wrong way. Um, I'm sorry this has kind of put your neck out of joint a little bit. Maybe we can sort things out a bit. Now you see Paul and Barnabas see what's going on. They're not surprised or caught off guard. Because they know the gospel will cause a response. They know the gospel will cause a reaction. Paul's going to write about it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 23. What is the gospel? What does it cause? 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. And what is this? 
What is Christ crucified? A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul and Barnabas are aware. They know some people are not going to react well to this. The very idea of Jesus crucified on a cross being, an, being the answer is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles or to Greeks. But Paul and Barnabas are confident ultimately in who they are in Christ and they can respond with boldness. This is the truth that we presented. What did they say to them? In verse 46, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. It's easy to be intimidated. It's easy to be scared by negative or angry responses or people thinking, you could have put that a bit better, or I'm not really sure I agree with that. I'm not really sure I agree with what you're talking about. But Paul and Barnabas remain confident in what the word says. And they're confident and understand what is going on. We've presented the truth to you and you are rejecting it. That's what's going on. It can be easy to be intimidated. It can be easy to end up ap apologetic and backed into, feeling backed into a corner. But like Paul and Barnabas, we can remain confident in the truth of the word of God, in the king that we serve and in the Holy Spirit that is at work within us. Fourthly, we trust God for the response. As we've just looked at, the gospel, the truth should provoke a response. And we see some interesting responses here. The Jewish leaders are the ones who ask Paul and Barnabas to speak. But they end up not particularly pleased with what they say. Many Gentiles eagerly hear what they've got to say and they want to know more. To the point where next week the whole city turn up. We see multiple responses. Tell us more. We see people honouring the word of the Lord. We see that those appointed to eternal life believed. But at the same time, we also see jealousy, contradiction, abuse. And the inciting of those with influence to do something about these two troublemakers. Get rid of them. We see huge contrasts. From the Jewish leaders going from asking them to speak to telling them to leave. The Gentiles who were once outside, they hear and they're welcomed in. Salvation comes in that place. Those who are appointed to eternal life believe. 
And yet that's met with jealous anger. Very differing responses. Joy and salvation as well as jealous outrage. And we can know as we step out, as we live as the people of God, whether that's through loving one another, whether that's through being ready to give an answer, whether that's through being out there directly proclaiming the gospel on the streets. We can't know the outcome in every situation, but we are called to obey and leave that to God. To speak out, to give an answer, to to go on loving one another and living out the truth of the gospel. And we see what God does. It's put so simply in this passage. In verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Paul and Barnabas are obedient. They take the opportunity that's presented them and God saves people. God saves people. Let's see this. It's God who saves. It's God who's in control. We trust him for the response. I know we'd love to make it happen. So interesting what Ali was bringing about the, the fruit taped to a tree, but even taping pears to a tree can't make it into a pear tree and can't make those pears grow. Only God can do that. Only God can make that happen. So I'm going to come into a close by just saying this, it is God's story. That's what we're caught up in. That's what we see as Paul speaks to the people in Bithynia and Antioch. Look what God has done and is continuing to do. He has done it. He has made a way. And he is at work every day in every place. That's the story that we're caught up in. If we're in Christ, we've been brought in to this story, into this family, into this body and then the encouragement is let's trust him let's stand firm in him let's believe him and his words be ready as he gives the opportunity let's always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have and let's see what he will do Even today, how do we respond? For many, it is that. Let us continue to trust God and recognise he is at work and he's in control and he is doing it. He is winning a people for himself, calling a people to himself that he has won. So continue to trust him and live it out. But also, for some here today, it may be this very thing. The very call that Paul gives, you can be part of this. You can know forgiveness today. Verse 38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. 
a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And the warning is true also. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Salvation, forgiveness has come that we could never earn, that you could never win for yourself. Because we are all sinners in need of a saviour. So for those of you who are here who don't know him, Heed the warning and hear the invitation. Forgiveness is available for sinners who come and repent and believe in him.